Welcome back, everybody, to the Tales Never Fails podcast. The voice you're hearing is Parker Hurley, which means I'll be hosting and doing another solo podcast today as we recap week six and start to preview week seven with our Thursday night preview of week seven. So stay tuned for that at the very end. But as always, we'll go through our thoughts from week six, some things to look forward to trend wise, some things to look into during the week, injury stuff, fantasy stuff. So we won't bore you with any of the other stuff. We'll get straight into it with the New England Patriots on Thursday night football, 35 to 14. Um, pretty much kind of, you know, we said Patriots and over on the recap uh, podcast last week. So definitely was, was kind of on there. And even uh, you ended up getting some value because the win factor pushed the total down, but it still went over because the Giants defense has just so many holes in it. When you look at Daniel Jones and his propensity to turn the football over against the New England Patriots on a short week, you add in all of the skill players that were out for that game. You could have seen the Patriots in an opportunistic mode in a situation where the Giants no matter how you know poor or whatever the Patriots offense is doing and I know the uh, Patriots defense scored what two or three of those touchdowns um, and also you know gave Tom Brady some short fields but nonetheless there was going to be a point where that Dan was going to break for the Giants defense and the Patriots were going to find ways to get right. I still don't think they're necessarily right. They still have their issues at wide receiver. Um, Dorsett's, you know, banged up. Josh Gordon, he got banged up during that game. So it's going to be interesting to see, you know, where, how he comes along throughout the week. They're gotten Nikhil Harry is practicing their rookie um, for the first time. He's still on the IR. It'll be a couple weeks for him, but it seems like they probably need, you know, their first round rookie to kind of step in here. And that's where, you know, we were saying back at the beginning, they probably did need a guy like AB from the start and um, they, their backup fullback ended up getting hurt when so James Devlin goes down their backup fullback goes down they're still trying to figure it out on the ground so um, yeah it's still the Patriots are you know they're trucking along on offense finding their way because you know they have Tom Brady and then on defense they're the best defense in the NFL they're turning the football over like crazy um, Stefan Gilmore had a big game the McCourty brothers doing their thing and I mean the other biggest thing is they're mixing up pressures I think I read something that they only have two down linemen or they have two down linemen about uh, like 60, 60 or 70 percent of the time the Patriots do you know that's it you know only like 20 30 percent of the time do they have three or four down linemen because people are just standing up and that's how they mix up their blitzes um they just put guys in different spots and some guys drop and some guys stay you know guys like uh, John Simon uh, Chase Winovich players like that who are very versatile in their role are kind of just standing around the line of scrimmage Dante Hightower Jamie Collins having a big season um, which we kind of predicted as well so yeah the Patriots just keep rolling along on defense so it's going to be hard to stop them and you know Daniel Jones um, obviously ever since he's played Tampa Bay it hasn't you know worked out for him and you start to look into Tampa Bay's defense especially against the pass and saying that well you know maybe you know considering there was no tape on Jones to begin with um, it's going to be interesting to see how Jones trends because he's going to get Shepard back. He's going to get Ingram back. He's going to get Barkley back. So it'll be interesting to see if he's able to settle in or if he's going to, you know, hit a big time rookie wall here because there's really a chance for both. He's at a big time merging point. So it's nice that they get the 10 days of rest and then they get into um, getting their skill players back. So we'll see. On to the London game, the Carolina Panthers sitting at 4-2, winning 37-26 over the 2-4 Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And hopefully you did listen to our Carolina Panthers preview podcast because we were talking about you know riding this team and going over their win total. And I talked about how I even wasn't concerned about the backup quarterback position. So, you know, we kind of did. And, you know, even I think we've been on the Panthers uh, in like five or six of their games so far. Honestly, maybe even every single game because they pushed against the Rams and we were on them. 
them. They lost against the Bucks. I think we had a tease that we lost when they lost against the Bucks, but then we've we've rode them every single game since then, and they've covered every single game since then because we kind of, like I said, you know, we, we put our money on it before the season, and I said in that podcast that I thought with a backup quarterback they could do a lot of the same things, so kind of put my money on it again and doubled down, and so far it's been worth it, but I mean, even Kyle Allen, he hasn't even necessarily been all that great. He hasn't turned the football over, which was pretty big. Um, I talked about he has he has those fumbling issues, which still his pocket presence. He still leaves clean pockets, but I think he's developing, which is great. And I think he's going to be a long term NFL backup. I just don't think there's actually a real conversation about whether the offense is better or not with Cam Newton. You know, if if Newton were healthy, and I mean Newton has Liz Frank injury, which you know. Who knows how long that's going to be? There isn't even a report that he'll be back soon yet, but I just don't think I've seen anything from Allen that there's actually a quarterback controversy there. Um, on the contrary, I think what's going on for Carolina is that their defense has been a lot better. You know, they got off to that six and two start, and you know what I've talked about repeatedly, and why I like the Panthers was that six and two start really showed that they were able to put Cam in an offense where they are flowing on all cylinders. But the issue with that team at that point was their defense was terrible. So when Cam got hit with his shoulder injury, their defense completely, you know, fell apart towards the end of the season. Ron Rivera ended up taking control of the play calling. They draft Byron Burns, um, Brian Burns, who's a big time hit in the first round. Um, They're getting, uh, I talk about it all the time. They mix up their looks. They're just like the Patriots where they essentially only have two down linemen for the majority of their snaps. And the rest of the guys are kind of just standing around and um, a guy like Brian Burns can drop into coverage, but he also can blitz. You know, Kukley can blitz. Uh, Shaq Thompson can blitz. It can confuse teams. And when you have a guy like Jameis Winston, um, who has, you know, we talked about their offensive line injuries heading into the game. And we were thinking, you know, the Panthers would probably cover and be able to put up some points in this game. And they did. Really not a huge surprise. But again, going back to the Panthers defense continues to uh, exceed expectations, whereas, um, yeah, the Buccaneers' offensive line has been struggling. And, you know, they can defend the run. They held McCaffrey, I think he had, like, uh, 30 rushing yards. But then he obviously had, you know, his two touchdowns, and I think he had, like, 70 through the air. Um, no, only tw- only 24 through the air, 25 through the air. So he was somewhat held in check, but nonetheless, the Buccaneers were able to um, – they were just getting torched in the, in the passing game. And when you add in the Jameis, you know, all those turnovers and – Everyone's obviously, you know, Jameis, is, it's going to be tough for him to, you know, continue to build his trust back, but I don't put a lot on him considering uh, the situation of London in the offensive line, and we'll see how he bounces back, but the other thing I want to note is that, you know, the more you read into the Bruce Arians situation, it just seems like he's basically supervising Byron Leftwich, you know, and he looked at the Byron Leftwich situation in Arizona and thought that because he gave his recommendation to him to stay in Arizona when he retired and he did stay in Arizona, that maybe that would get left, which, you know, a quarterback who had followed him since, um, you know, he coached him for the Pittsburgh Steelers and he's, you know, f- followed him around as, as left, which has, you know, come up for his coaching career and Arians has brought him along, brought him along. And then it went so awful in Arizona because of Mike McCoy and everything. And the uh, Josh Rosen in the offensive line went so poorly that it seems like Bruce Arians kind of stepped back in thinking that if he could get this Buccaneers situation, um, then he, it would it would be a good way to get Leftwich's feet wet because Leftwich is obviously calling all the plays. The issue is that Leftwich has been you know extremely conservative. Um, he's running the football, but he's not running play action off of it. Winston has no interceptions off of play action, but they run about seventy percent of their passes. You know, uh, or they're thirty second in the NFL in terms of they don't run any play action. So. 
it's been interesting. Leftwich is obviously growing, but you know, he really, it seems like the play calling and all the decision-making has come down to him. And that's why I keep saying it's so questionable because none of this comes back to any of Bruce Arians tendencies. Um, and it does, honestly, the more I keep reading, it just sounds like this is really, um, Leftwich is, you know, a chance for him. It's obviously, I don't think he's going to be hitched to Winston. I think we'll get a chance um, one more year beyond Winston, but we'll see what he's able to do because they're not going to bench Winston. Um, he really gives them their best chance to win. And, you know, Evans um, continues to be up and down considering his cornerback situation. It continues to have Chris Godwin eating. And um, those two continue to be funnels because they play in these high-paced games. And when Winston turns the football over, he's coming back and throwing the football more. And when he's not turning the football over, their defense is putting him in situations where he's throwing the football more so it's not bad for fantasy on to the next one Redskins Dolphins honestly won't waste a lot of time with this one did think that you know Dolphins catching three and a half could potentially cover and have a chance to win but in Dolphins fashion that last play was pretty funny but it really just comes down to the fact that you know Josh Rosen everybody's going to say you know poor guy bad offensive line no skill players you know went from Arizona to a tanking team everything along those lines but like I said in that podcast they should have beat Washington in this situation, or they had a very real chance to beat Washington. And Ryan Fitzpatrick, with his team trailing 17 to third, 17 to three, came off of the bench and led his team to a point where they literally, you know, could have. They had a one play from the three yard line to beat Washington. Um, the fact that Fitzpatrick was able to do that in one quarter shows how far behind Ryan Fitzpatrick, Josh Rosen is at this point in his career. And like I said, you can make up all the excuses in the world, but you know, some people, you know, it's not going to happen. You have to be put in to a good situation. He's not in a good situation, but it's just not going to happen for him, it seems like. He's still so far behind the learning trajectory. He's still, like I'm saying, it's still an NFL team that he needs to, you know, show competency and show poison. You know, you look at, we're going to talk about Sam Darnold with the Jets, an 0-4 team, um, you know, potentially tanking roster. Everyone's questioning Adam Gase, but when he comes back in, he brings life into his offense. When Ryan Fitzpatrick steps in, he's throwing the football down the field. Josh Rosen isn't bringing much, you know, to where um, all these, you know, all the scouts and everything, he looks the part, he's got nice footwork, everything like that. I mean, that's great. But at some point, he's going to have to actually produce in the NFL. And whether he gets a raw deal or not, you know, he may not get a chance beyond this year. And if he does, it's going to be in a quarterback competition situation. So it stinks for him that, you know, this is kind of how it shook out. But he he needs to step up and be better because he just isn't good enough at this point. Um, and there are no excuses, in my opinion. So uh, Terry McLaurin is a real good, you know, he had, what, two touchdowns at 100 yards. They scored 17 points. So, I mean, really, you know, Bill Callahan ran the ball and ran the ball and ran the ball, and it was just absolutely ineffective. It left the door open for Ryan Fitzpatrick to come in off the bench and, and spark life into his team. Um, and, you know, if, if that's going to happen against the Miami Dolphins, can you imagine, you know, what's going to happen for Washington moving forward? So Washington arguably should be disappointed that they weren't, you know, they should have just put zero guys on the field and let Miami score on that two-point conversion, as funny as it sounds. On to the Saints and the Jaguars. Uh, another impressive performance for the Saints. They continue to over... Um, you know, shoot their expectations. They go to five and one. They're four and zero with Teddy Bridgewater. And you know, it's funny as um, I've, everyone's talking about. Oh, Kyle Allen's four and zero without Cam Newton. What does this really say about Cam Newton? But Teddy Bridgewater's four and zero about Drew Brees, and it says absolutely nothing about Drew Brees. <laughs> that's that's where we are in life. Um, you know, I don't know Teddy Bridgewater, Kyle Allen. There's a huge difference between the two. The difference between the two is uh, fumbles. 
where, you know, Kyle Allen does have some fumbles. Teddy Bridgewater hasn't really fumbled the ball whatsoever, and he hasn't turned the football over. And we talked about how the pressure of the Jaguars would turn the Saints into a situation where they want to slow the game down. They want to drag the thing out, and Teddy's going to go back to his check down ways. And he absolutely did, but, you know, he didn't turn the football over. He made enough completions when it mattered. They did control the clock. The situation was, though, you know, they scored 13 points. The issue was for the Jaguars, they just did absolutely nothing on offense. And you can continue to, you know, the Saints do have a good run defense. We kind of knew that coming in. And what was really questionable about the Jaguars passing or, you know, game plan is that, you know, with, with John Filippo, they were kind of, you know, throwing the football a lot early on in downs. But in this game, they seem to, you know, because of the Saints and because of the, you know, their their pass defense is pretty good. Lattimore had a great game on DJ Chark, you know, really just completely knocked him out of that game. They do have a good pass defense, you know, Vaughn Bell and everything, but st- still the Jaguars idea to come out and run the football. All it did was put, you know, Minshew into third and long situations to where when he was throwing the football on first down, he was picking up, you know, eight, nine yards at a time, seven, eight yards at a time, and then setting up, you know, early second downs where you run the ball and you do convert and now you're moving the football. Whereas in this game, it was kind of run, run, third and eight. Minshew's under pressure. Uh, Peyton was really mixing up his blitzes at that point, you know, on third down or Dennis Allen was the defensive coordinator on the, on those third downs in Minshew all of a sudden, you know, I think he had a fumble and an interception in this game that really set the Saints up in, in good position. So I keep looking at the Saints and, you know, special teams and turnovers against the Seahawks, um, a Zeke fumble and a Witten fumble against the, uh, on, on Sunday night football, you know, they go into the Buccaneers and it's, you know, a couple bad calls and a couple Winston, you know, dumb decisions. And now it's Minshew. And like I said, you know, just run first Jaguars attack on a, on a team that was just trending towards, you know, th- letting their rookie throw the football. They get to the Saints and they're trying to run the football. And they're not really even working play action off of it. So the Saints are running a little bit hot right now. I still can't put my finger on how good they are, but I keep going back to the idea is that they're going to get Breeze back at some point and their defense continues to step up. And like I said, um, they're defending the run a lot better than you would suspect. They're defending the pass as good as they can because considering um, Marshawn Lattimore and how he's done in the past couple games, I think he shut down Cooper, uh, Chark, and then um, last week he shut down Mike Evans, had zero reception. So Lattimore is playing pretty well. So if they're able to get Drew Breeze back, it's going to be interesting to see, you know, where they're able to run in terms of, you know, what their ceiling is because they just keep racking up these wins. And while I don't, you know, they're not the most impressive wins, they are wins that are going to get them, you know, potentially home field in the NFC Championship and things moving forward. So it's been at least they're, you know, they're continuing to survive. It shows, you know, it shows for the coaching staff and it shows for the defense and it shows that the whole team understands that they have to be more opportunistic. So, um, yeah, them and the Panthers have been what uh, – 8-0 since they're, since Cam Newton and Drew Brees have gone down. Bengals and Ravens, and this one went, you know, pretty pretty much how we, we expected. Lamar Jackson was going to be a huge play. It probably wasn't going to be through the air, although he did, you know, a, a top 230 yards. He still didn't have any touchdowns through the air. He had, what, 150 and a touchdown on the ground, which, like I said, that just makes your DFS day as it is. The Bengals, that's just what they're going to be. They're a very slow team in the middle of the field and if you're slow in the middle of the field in today's NFL you're going to have some serious issues so they were just able to consistently get exposed in that regard the question that I had with the Ravens offense and here's the thing you know they score 23 points against this slow defense of the Bengals that you know hey the Steelers put up 27 um you, you know you could say the defense of the Steelers put up you know or helped put up a, a bunch but 
that's where this offense of the Ravens, and you're looking and saying, you know, okay, they beat up on Miami, they beat up on Arizona, they need garbage time against the Browns, they need garbage time against the Chiefs, they need garbage time, you know, they barely, uh, they put up 23 against the Bengals, they need Devlin Hodges to come in against the Steelers. So, you know, they're running a little bit hot right now, and you're, you know, you're questioning how long this can actually last for this team, considering their defense. Um, yes, they did give up a touchdown in terms of a, a kick return for a touchdown, but up 23-10, to 10, they just, you know, let the Bengals go right down the field for 90 yards, get in the back door for the cover, which is what we were kind of expecting and looking for in that game. So um, then I talked about Lamar Jackson. He throws to Hollywood Brown. He throws to Mark Andrews. What's going to happen when Hollywood Brown is completely out of the game? You know, he's out for this game. Mark Andrews has six for 99. Lamar Jackson targets him the majority of the time. And then from there, you know, Willie Sneed has five targets. He hauls in three receptions. Um, Nick Boyle, you know, four targets, catches all uh, catches two of them. Miles Boykin, three targets. Targets catches two of them. You know, you go down two receptions for Boykin, two receptions for Roberts. Uh, you know, three for Snead. It's just, it's not impressive. They don't have another pass catcher to where they're they're consistently relying on uh, Hollywood and and, Boy, and uh, Andrews. And without Hollywood, they're having some serious questions. And that's where you're getting into. Lamar Jackson is running the football a lot more than he has been, and they're getting into the, more of these slow-paced games, and their offense hasn't necessarily taken that step forward that a lot of people thought they were going to when you saw those first two games. So, okay, yeah, they're sitting here at 4-2, and two, but it, it hasn't been as impressive at 4-2 and two as I, I think a lot of people are going to think in terms of, like I said, you know, everybody underrated Lamar, and I'm sitting here saying, you know, they probably should be even better than 4-2. and two. And one last thing, we had uh, Marlon Humphrey on Tyler Boyd, he followed him into the slot for all the snaps. He followed Juju into the slot. So, you know, now Humphrey is becoming a player to where, you know, I keep saying it, you have to be to be an elite cornerback in today's NFL. You have to follow players into the slot. So Humphrey really is taking that step towards being, you know, from one of the better cornerbacks to now he really is an elite cornerback in the NFL. And that's something that you've really seen over really just this entire season. Although the fact that all those pieces in that Baltimore secondary are falling apart around him. You know, Tony Jefferson, his backup goes down in this game. So the Ravens' pass defense is going to continue to struggle because even in this game, you know, with the uh, with the Bengals' offensive line, you know, they're starting their uh, they're starting right guard is playing at left tackle right now, uh, and that's just you know the the start of the issues with the Bengals' offensive line. But even you know there, the the Ravens weren't necessarily able to shut them down completely. On to the Seahawks in the Browns. Uh, the Seahawks go to five and one with a really impressive win. Like I kind of said, I thought they would potentially go on the road and lose. Um, luckily, we got some teases in that included the Beng or the Browns getting over a touchdown, and those came through. And we had the over, which came through. So actually, did do pretty well in this game, despite the fact that we also had the Browns to win the game straight up. So obviously disappointed in the result, but still, you kind of look at this game and say. The Browns go up 20-6. to six. You know, everything that we kind of thought was going to happen was going to happen. You know, the Seahawks are playing their zone defense. Baker's kind of picking them apart. Odell finishes, you know, with, with his bounce-back game that we really expected. But as that game started to go on, um, just the Browns are just, they're in an interesting situation. I keep talking about Freddie Kitchens. Um, that you know, I, hey, I, we liked him. We bet on him all last season. We thought that he injected something into this offense that they absolutely needed. But... Kind of as I keep saying, there's a lot more to being a head coach than calling the right play at the right time. And as, as I was reading all those quotes through the offseason, I'm saying, you know, I think he's potentially in over his head. And now you start to get into these game situations. And he continues to butcher game situation after game situation. He continues to butcher um, roster management. His team's super undisciplined. They commit so many penalties. And like I talked about with Antonio Callaway, he 
keeps giving him chance after chance after chance, despite the fact that he's not taking advantage, you know, puts in no great effort, despite the fact that Rashard Higgins, who really kind of earned a preseason, um, or earned a role in the preseason, has shown great rapport with Baker Mayfield, comes back from injury, but they go with, you know, the kid Higgins, or uh, Callaway over him, you know, he has a mistiming with Baker Mayfield, Odell has a drop, despite the fact that he had a pretty good game, um, you know, Dontrell Hilliard, they trade Duke Johnson, because Baker Mayfield calls out Duke Johnson, and Dontrell Hilliard drops a pass on, you know, a potential game-winning drive for Mayfield. Um, Mayfield really, you know, that was also not necessarily the best pass for him. And he had, you know, a potential hip injury. And his offensive line isn't necessarily doing much favors. But we talked about Seattle's pass rush and the fact that, you know, Baker and them did put up 28 points in this game because they, you know, Baker was able to sit back there and sit back there. But he's looking like he's hesitant. He's looking like he keeps pressing and pressing and, you know, he keeps looking like he's trying to, you know, just strike the big one and strike the big one. And Freddie, you know, he keeps calling up these plays that, you know, they're, they're trying to be cute in these like third and two situations and his offensive line is getting absolutely mowed down. And, you know, they don't know when to call, you know, I think that the fact that he's getting so um, overwhelmed with all these other factors is actually starting to affect his play calling to where, you know, now all of a sudden he went from, he's a good play caller to he's actually not even calling that many great plays. Um, he's not putting Baker Mayfield in good situations. He's not relying on Nick Chubb when, you know, Nick Chubb goes 20 for a buck 22. Um, they really could have consistently pounded Nick Chubb and even got Nick Chubb going a little bit more in the screen and passing game. And he kind of got away from that in uh, a little bit of too many situations. Um, you know, they're sitting there up 20 to six and and you're thinking that this should be a game that Mayfield and these guys at home with Nick Chubb are able to put away. You know, you're sitting there up 20 to 6, and, you know, they're throwing it all over the place. Um, like I said, Callaway's dropping passes. Um, you know, they're, the Seahawks are picking off passes into the end zone. There was just a uh, – and then, you know, it's what, 28 to – it's 20 to 18 by halftime because – the Browns are just, you know, farting around, missing uh, red zone opportunities. Like I said, whether it be cute play calling or missed throws by Mayfield. The Browns were down 25 to 20. Fourth and goal. They got 12 men on the field. So the Browns got a free play because of the Seahawks. Um, they didn't score, but they could have just got the free play and moved on. But Kitchens, you know, he completely slowed down the entire game. He doesn't understand that... Um, that they got the free play. He wants them to reset the play when the game clock. Um, he call he burns a timeout for you know a real unquestionable reason because they were so worried he wanted to challenge that they scored that play. But nonetheless, they were going to get a free play, and he ended up challenging it after he called a timeout, after they got the penalty resolved, after they reset his play clock, after they ran a play that resulted in a touchdown. Essentially, they ran a play that. Was and you know as they snap the ball, Freddie Kitchens is throwing his challenge flag on the field. It would have just been a touchdown nonetheless, but Kitchens is doing all this, slows the game down, and then he runs the same exact play that they just ran and they scored a touchdown on because he's so you know he, like I said he's so overwhelmed with all these other things, um the play clock and the you know the, the call and this and that and that and it's he's not, he doesn't have all these other people that are kind of keeping him in line. So it, it looks, it just looked, it was a bad situation for the refs, but it was a really bad look for him because it just showed how discombobulated he was. And they did get the ball back and they scored right after it. But it was just, it just shows how, you know, poor he was and he wasted a challenge. And then they needed the challenge later in the game because DK Metcalf catches a pass that if he had been able to throw the challenge flag, probably would have got them the ball down by four with about two minutes left. So it's all these situations that Kitchens continues to, you know, struggle with. And like I said, you know, his receivers aren't doing him any help, but it's not the same type of magic um, that it was obviously last season. And then you look into the Seattle Seahawks, you know, Pete Carroll 
Um, like I talked about with his defense, it's an extremely basic defense. It allows somebody like Baker Mayfield to bounce back, and despite the fact that Mayfield played so poorly, um, you know, he was able to have two touchdowns, a rushing touchdown and a passing touchdown. So, you know, his defense isn't that great. He overly relies on the run when he has a quarterback like Russell Wilson, who's insanely efficient. But, you know, the fact is that he's a great coach and he wins at a, you know, a real astounding rate, despite the fact that, you know, analytical people don't necessarily like how he um, manages games. And they think that Russell Wilson bails him out and they think that the defense bailed him out. But it has to a lot come down to Pete Carroll's coaching style where he lets competition bring out the best in people. Um, They're hyper-efficient in terms of explosive plays, whether it be in the passing game or the running game, he finds explosive plays and they're hyper-efficient in terms of uh, turnovers, whether it be off the, you know, the tip ball drill, things like that. You can tell that they pinpoint and focus on small situations that win games and he consistent his team team consistently flips games they consistently find ways to go to the east coast and win games because they capitalize off of turnovers um so i think pete carroll is a really really underrated coach despite the fact that you know you're watching him on sunday and you're almost frustrated with how he's managing a game but then his team makes all these you know, situational plays that you're so impressed with. And, you know, I always talk about Russell Wilson is just insanely efficient on uh, third down, throwing the football down the field. Whereas, you know, that's, that's the hardest down to throw the football down the field. So it's just all these weird situations. You know, Russell Wilson is probably the MVP to date. You know, there's a couple touchdowns to, uh, you know, Jerron Brown. He's just really, you know, he's cooking right now. And it really, it obviously helps Pete Carroll. But like I said, the Seahawks are opportunistic as a team. Wilson is opportunistic in terms of his deep field explosion and accuracy. And Carroll kind of knows when to pinpoint and pick and choose those specific times to take his shots. So this really was kind of an outclassing of Pete Carroll versus Freddie Kitchens. And you really kind of saw who the better coach was as the game went out. And despite the fact that, um, like I kind of said, I think, you know, the Browns were in a situation where they should have won and they probably had the, the, you know, the better situation and were in better position to win the game. But the better coach was throughout every turning point of that game. The Seahawks got more momentum and they got better calls and, you know, they got better, all the turnovers and everything. It was all because of Pete Carroll throughout the game. Whereas on the other side, you see Freddie Kitchens kind of flubbering all over himself, um, making bad play calls, everything like that. So that was really the difference in that game. On to the Eagles and the Vikings. Um, um, 38-20 for the Vikings, a really impressive win for the Minnesota Vikings. They're really tough at home. Um, that's something that you really have to factor in is that they're able to instill their mojo and you know get their thing going at home. The Eagles fall to 3-3. Three and three. Um, pretty disappointing, but they're also looking at Dallas, and Dallas is 3-3. Three and three, So um, you know not everything's all doom and gloom for the Eagles. But for the Minnesota side, really impressive performance considering they did come out and they passed the football against this porous Eagles passing defense. They were able to get Kirk Cousins into a rhythm early. He did convert some third downs, but they also kept him out of a lot of third downs due to the fact that they weren't overly reliant on their ground game. Obviously, you know, um, Thielen gets his, his big bounce back game the week prior. Diggs gets his big bounce back game this week. Um, they get off to a huge lead early into the game. And then um, the Eagles did slowly start to fight back. Um, it was a pretty impressive, you know, ability that they they had a chance where I think it was twenty four to twenty four to ten maybe, and they could have got it to twenty four thirteen with a field goal before the half, but they chose a fake field goal and they didn't get it, and they got no points out of that, and that stings because they come down right after that um, and score a touchdown and make it twenty four to seventeen because they got the ball at the half, so it could have been twenty four to twenty in that spot. They actually did get the score to twenty four twenty, and maybe that's the time when you know it's twenty four twenty and you're kicking. 
or you know potentially kicking a field goal, maybe that's the time you go for a fake or you go for it or you get aggressive if you're Doug Peterson. So not necessarily, you know, in my opinion, the best time to make that call. And they could have kept themselves in the game if they didn't. But what was impressive about that was, like I said, it goes from 24 to 10 to 24 to 17 right after the half. Um, the Vikings turned the football over. They kind of started to get back into, you know, I think they went run, run, uh, pass on that punt the football. The Eagles come down, make it 24 to 20. And the Vikings right after that hit a huge bomb to Stefan Diggs, 31, 20 completely changes the game completely. You know, they go right back to the passing game. Whereas, you know, you kind of would have assumed at 24, 20, there was a chance that they would have ran the football straight up the gut at that Eagles run defense that has been so great. Um, you know, 14 for, uh, or 16 for 41 from Dalvin Cook, the Eagles were able to load up on that run defense. Um, but it really didn't matter because of how porous they are in their secondary. And, you know, Sidney Jones, uh, he got called out by Doug Peterson throughout the week, and he got called out during the game. I think it was Malcolm Jenkins, or after the game, really called out Sidney Jones. Um, Russell Douglas wasn't, you know, much better for him. So they have all these, you know, five or six guys who, if they could get them going, are decent guys, but none of them are going in their secondary right now, and they're really blowing coverages. So. That's obviously hurting them. Um, for the offense, for the Eagles, you know, they're missing a lot of the speed of Deshaun Jackson, and Jackson obviously opens up a huge portion of their offense. But um, still, you know, just not the most impressive performance for Peterson. Like I said, he got them into that hole to begin with, which is not the best game plan out the gate, and then calls the, you know, poorly timed, miskicked field goal. But, you know, other than that, they kind of did, you know, perform reasonably well. Nonetheless, um, they do need that speed, but Miles Sanders, they were able to get him matched up on bar over the middle of the field. Sanders had a great game in the passing game. That's going to consistently be a situation because they're going to consistently go heavy with their two tight ends. They're just getting Goddard into the mix. And if they can get Goddard into the mix and get Deshaun Jackson into the mix, you can finally see what this offense is supposed to be. And then the last thing is, I think it's just in, in, uh, disappointing that uh, J.J. Arcega-Whiteside, you know, all this time they're missing Deshaun Jackson, missing Deshaun Jackson. He doesn't bring the speed, but he could bring size and, you know, could box out deep down the field. Um, but he can't even beat out Matt. Hollins, which I think that's very disappointing for Arkega Whiteside, who's a second round pick. So, um, yeah, not an overly impressive performance for the Eagles, but I think you do consistently go back to the Eagles and say, um, if they can get Deshaun Jackson back on offense and, you know, somehow they got to figure out their pass defense. I don't know how they're going to. Um, that's probably going to be an issue that uh, hinders their Super Bowl hopes because their pass rush, you know, you expected a lot more out of Fletcher Cox. So that was disappointing. And really just, you know, overall, they're not getting the pressure that they need to get considering how poor their pass secondary is. So that's it's an interesting development that's going to happen all season. On to the Chiefs and the Texans, and um, yeah, we were worried about the upset in the preview podcast, but didn't really have what it took to call it, and then it, it absolutely happened, and early into this game, you actually didn't think it was going to happen, where I think Hyde fumbled, um, I think even Hopkins fumbled, and all of a sudden the score was 10 nothing. you thought that Houston was going to, you know, get just blown out of this game by Patrick Mahomes and that tsunami of a Chiefs offense. But as the game goes on, the Texans defense does hold firm. I think a lot of the questions that we had considering the Chiefs offense were brought to life throughout the game. And the Chiefs just weren't able to consistently keep in this game. And the Texans really executed a great game plan against a poor Chiefs defense. They kept Mahomes off the field. Um, they did, you know, stick to the ground game despite the fact that it was 10-0 Chiefs. You know, they didn't just give up on it and, you know, let the let the Chiefs pin their ears back. So an impressive performance nonetheless when you look at it. But still 
really one of the most interesting plays in this game was uh it's 17 to 9 the Chiefs were or the Texans were fighting back into this game 17 to 9 but Mahomes was driving he throws an interception in the end zone because it looked like he saw um pass interference and took a shot at it and it ended up getting intercepted but what happened was they reviewed pass interference and said that it wasn't pass interference it was defensive holding so they weren't going to call defensive holding because they can only overturn for pass interference which just is you know I keep talking about how stupid this pass interference rule is and how they never should have let it in for the fir- in the first place and I bet on the Saints to beat the Rams and I'm definitely salty about that stupid call but the fact that these are the implications makes makes it honestly even worse it really does make it even worse because you know then it's a uh, 17 to 9 um, the Texans go right down the field, make it 17-16, and then the Chiefs go into a situation where they have the ball with about three minutes left, and Andy Reid gives them the ball. Uh, they miss a, a really long field goal attempt, and Andy Reid takes no time off of the clock. The Texans get the ball right back, and they're able to score right before the half and go up 23-17, to and kind of, you know, the Chiefs do score and make it 24-23, but then the Texans go on a long drive that soaks up a majority of the fourth quarter. And um, they go up 31-24 and really put that game away. So this game had a couple of turning points. One was that interception by Mahomes. That was a huge turning point. But the other was Reed mismanaging the clock, letting the Texans get another chance right before the half when he could have. It's three-minute drive time. You know, let's keep things um, let's slow things down. Let's get some points before the half. Everything like that. He's on, you know, full oxygen. You know, uh, kicking it every single, or you know, kicking it into high gear every single play. And that doesn't make things easier on his defense because if his offense, you know, if they're throwing it every single time, they're scoring so fast. His defense is back on the field, or they're um, they're turn, you know, they're punting the football and not getting the football, or uh, then the defense is getting on the field just as fastly. And that's where the Texans. Just run the football, play slow, grind this defense down. That they're just getting tired and tired and tired. This has happened over what three or four games now. You know, Carry On Johnson does it, um, Marlon Mack does it, and now Carlos Hyde and them are just able to run the football just straight down them and really just wear down this defense that is on the field way too much because the offense doesn't know how to slow things down ever. And you know that, like I keep saying, that looks great metrically. It looks great in the stats, but when you break it down, it's you know these are people and they're getting tired. <laughs> You know, it's hurting their defense and his offensive line. You know, Mahomes has an ankle injury. It's obviously affecting his accuracy. His offensive line is completely banged up. It's affecting a lot of the timing with everything. Tyreek Hill was able to get back into the game and had a great game, but he played 28 of the 55 snaps, so he only played half of the game. Um, when he was on the field, he was a, a true game player, a game changer. They had 198 yards when he was on the field, but they had 111 yards in the 50% of the snaps when he was not on the field. So a huge discrepancy and a showing that when they were not getting that huge play from Tyreek Hill, this offense was actually pretty pedestrian and was being held in check due to all of these situations. So a super impressive performance by the Texans nonetheless, but you have to look at all these chargers, whether it be the offensive line, Mahomes ankle, all the secondary uh, pass catchers that need to step up in the absence of Watkins or with Hill not on the field for half of the snaps. All of that started to come to life. And, you know, Frank Clark, uh, got paid all that much, you know, all this money. I want to talk about him. He just really hasn't done anything whatsoever. It kind of looks like he got paid all that money, and now he's kind of just waiting for the playoffs with Mahomes to turn it on. But they may need him before then because, you know, now they lose two straight. They almost lost to the Lions. Um, they have a, a big game on Thursday night football. So it'll be interesting to see. You look at the Texans, um, another impressive performance. DeAndre Hopkins continues to be a, a fantasy disappointment, which is surprising. But teams are, you know, moving their coverage over there. The Texans are 
like I said, kind of leaning on the run a little bit more, and it was successful in this game. And they went to their two tight end set a little bit more, and that's where they've been really living out of their two tight end set. And then the coverage shifts to to, to DeAndre, and then he's able, you know, Watkins is a, or um, Deshaun Watson is able to hit his secondary targets, you know, almost hit Will Fuller who could have had a huge day, but Fuller continues, he dropped like three or four bombs that he was wide open, could have dropped, you know, easy touchdown game-changing passes. So Watson, again, you know, he continues to exceed my expectations, and he really is stepping into, um, you know, top-tier quarterback category as he enters his third year because he's really, you know, carrying this offense right now and really putting his skilled players in great positions. Like I said, whether it be Darren Fells um, getting the most out of him or Will Fuller's even uh, leaving more on the table than there should be. So um, good for the Texans. I think they are starting to figure some things out. They did lose their right tackle, Titus Howard, their first-round pick, but it seems like, you know, they got Sharping, the rookie, in there at left guard. They got uh, what's-his-name at left tackle. Tunsil is starting to get adjusted at left tackle. Um, so they're starting to get some of the pieces of the offensive line figured out. It's going to be interesting to see at right tackle. But yeah, just an uh, you know impressive performance from the Texans there. On to the Cardinals and the Falcons. And I mean, I just have no idea how Dan Quinn has his job right now. Um, you know, loses to the Cardinals, which we kind of expected that him taking this team to the West Coast was probably not going to you know work out well. And he's the defensive coordinator. And he's going to let Kyler Murray and Cliff Kingsbury just throw the football all over him. And yeah, that's basically what happened. You know, Kyler was able to stay a little bit more clean than usual. He was able to get out of the pocket and run, which he hasn't been able to do all that often. And, you know, you kind of see the results of this game. You know, Kyler Murray, I think uh, Steve had it that he got sacked like 20-something times in the first five or six games and um, didn't get sacked at all against Atlanta. Uh, one of the stats that I think, you know, we're going to talk about Marcus Mariota. Uh, his sacks by game, he has four, four, nine, zero, five, and three. Uh, the zero comes against the Atlanta Falcons. So, you know, two teams that take sacks more than anybody, the Arizona Cardinals and Atlanta Falcons, and Dan Quinn's defense is just completely unable to get there. And like I said, you know, he's the head coach of this team. He's trying to instill this run-first mentality. Um, he has no offensive line to do it whatsoever. Matt Ryan throws six incompletions and four touchdowns, and his team loses to a rookie quarterback and a rookie head coach. And really, you know, the score was 27 to 10, and Ryan needed to throw all those touchdowns or all those completions straight because Arizona's just sitting back up 27 to 10. And I'm not impressed with Cliff Kingsbury um, due to the fact that he was unable to put this team away. Um, you know, he, pl he played fast. He was able to, um, he got lucky and double dipped at halftime. You know, was able to get up uh, from 17 to 10 to 20 to 10 to 27 to 10 really quickly, but he just was unable to put this game away. When the game was tied, he needed to you know go down there and and uh, score a game-winning touchdown, and then Atlanta misses an extra point, or else they would have tied the game. You know, so I'm talking about Atlanta's dead in the water. Um, you know, this is all Arizona was able to do at home was only win by one point. So that that wasn't the most you know it was impressive due to the fact that Kyler Murray was really able to break out and he was able to push the football down the field. I was extremely impressed by Kyler Murray. Like I said, he didn't take any sacks, despite the fact that you know even Marcus Mariota didn't take any sacks against Atlanta. So that's just that just really does show where Atlanta is. But um, I did think that he was impressive in this game. But um, Dan Quinn, just like I said, he had poor mismanagement. Cliff Kingsbury had poor mismanagement to let their teams back in it. Kyler Murray really did help put them over the edge. And I think the issue is just uh, all the misdirection that you know Cliff ran. Uh, Atlanta just fell for all of it. Just a completely undisciplined team where, like I said, this is your defense, Dan. So he's got some big-time issues. The thing to take away from Arizona's offense is that 
I keep talking about they have no receivers other than Larry Fitz right now. So they're putting David Johnson in the slot, getting Chase Edmonds at running back. Sometimes putting Chase Edmonds in the slot and putting David Johnson at running back. I mean, David Johnson is the second best receiver on the roster right now. And Chase Edmonds is the third best receiver on the roster right now. That's just really where they are. And they need to act as if those two are the second and third best receivers on their roster. So it's, that's that's where they are for Arizona. I wasn't like I keep saying. I'm not too impressed by the fact that they were able to beat this wounded duck and really barely did it because of how you know unimpressive they were at times. On to the Rams and the 49ers, and I mean the 49ers. I talked about it in the preview podcast. You know, off of Monday Night Football. Sean McVay has extra rest from Thursday night football. You're coming off a huge win. They're coming off a huge loss. You don't have either of your starting tackles. You don't have your starting fullback. And um, you got the you know AF- NFC champions in their house. Potentially, you know, if you win, you're at five and zero. You put them away because um, you know they're at three and three, and now they have to go to your house. And um, so you got a game in hand, and you also have a two and a half game lead in the division over the Rams. This would be an extremely, extremely impressive performance for the Niners, and they were able to pull it off, and this just shows you that this team is completely legitimate. There's no doubt about it. It starts with, I keep saying, their defensive line. Uh, Bosa and Ford were huge additions because of the totem pole effect. It makes everybody else better because Sullivan Thomas was usually, he was out on the edge. Now he's on the interior. He's playing a lot better. It just, it makes their whole entire defense better. Um, DeForest Buckner is an obvious superstar. Quan Alexander, uh, you know, signed him off an ACL. It seemed like a lot of money at the time. He's shown that, you know, I keep saying the impact and the ability to defend the middle of the field really does matter. And him stepping in, defending the middle of the field has just been a huge boost to this defense. So it starts with the fact that they have a great defense. And I think their pass rush in single game scenarios is going to be able to change games because they have the depth where they can rotate names in the pass rush and keep their bodies fresh in their pass rush. So it all comes down to their pass rush, in my opinion, and the fact that I thought, you know, give it some time with their pass rush, but no, we don't need time. We're five games in, and they have one of the better pass rushes in the NFL right now, and they absolutely destroyed a Rams offensive line to where um, the Rams offensive line has some serious issues, you know, whether their center retired after the Super Bowl loss, um, whether Note Boom at guard is, is having some issues with his first season starting, whether Whitworth might be a little bit older. You know, he's starting to get towards the tail end of his career. So all of a sudden, the Rams' offensive line is having some issues, but the 49ers' defensive line has done this to everybody, and they just completely dominated the Rams' offensive line in a situation where maybe you weren't thinking, you know, that they could have or would have dominated. So a really impressive performance. But then on the offensive side of the ball, Jimmy G, like I said, he hasn't necessarily played all that well. While they're missing their two tackles, they're trying to get things going. The fact is Kyle Shanahan has this offense completely humming along. He's been a great game you know caller so far to date and like I said if you look in terms of personnel and you actually look in terms of is Kyle Shanahan a better head coach than Sean McVay his track record has been potentially better if you take away the fact that you know he covered a bunch of numbers with CJ Beathard and Nick Mullins okay that's not impressive to a lot of people but you know it was impressive to me but then you look into who took Atlanta to the Super Bowl Dan Quinn, who, like I said, his defense has gotten worse every single year, and his defense wasn't that great to begin with when they got to the Super Bowl and lost to the Patriots, and his defense blew a 28-3 lead. Or was it the guy who got the 28-3 lead? You know, I know Tom Brady threw a pick six, but Kyle Shanahan put Brady in a hole by 
you know, putting up numbers on offense and getting his team a lead on offense with the Atlanta Falcons. You know, that was the number one offense in NFL, uh, or is one of the best offenses ever. You know, Julio Jones had career years. Matt Ryan had an MVP season. You know, Matt Ryan was an MVP thanks to Kyle Shanahan. So now Shanahan comes here. He's starting to get his offense into works and he's coaching circles around Sean McVay, who put up three points in the Super Bowl against Bill Belichick, right? Shanny put up 21. Yeah, he blew a 28-3 lead. How embarrassing. Well, Sean McVay scored three points against Belichick. Maybe it's hard to coach against Bill Belichick, you know? So um, they both got embarrassed against Belichick, but Shanahan, in my opinion, did it a little bit more impressively. And then he had he didn't have the roster the last couple of seasons, and now he's able to get the roster. And like I said, he coached circles around McVay, who, you know, McVay, we've talked about it for a while, that his offense isn't necessarily gimmicky, but it stems off of very, very core per, you know pr- principles. And he just kind of adds little tiny gimmicks and little tiny window dressing. You know, guys like Vic Fangio, Matt Patricia, Bill Belichick completely said, we're not falling for play action. We're blitzing the hell out of Goff. We're not going to, um, we're going to hit you on the edges and we're going to come straight at you on the edges. We're not going to worry about getting um, beat on the outsides. We're going to come straight in on you. He hasn't been able to adjust for six games and his offense hasn't been nearly as impressive. You know, they beat the Browns where they scored, what, 20 points, you know, barely do anything. They beat the the Panthers when Cam Newton turns the football over and they get a ton of points off of turnovers. They beat Teddy Bridgewater when Drew Brees goes down halfway through the game and Bridgewater comes in cold. You know, how impressive have the Rams been this season? Not impressive at all to date. So they got Daryl Henderson. You know, the other, the other thing was, you know, they trade up to the third round for Henderson. It looks like he's going to be a staple of their offense that changes the way that people respect their running game. And they instead they go straight, you know, Todd Gurley, Todd Gurley, Malcolm Brown, Malcolm Brown. And Malcolm Brown has, you know, what, like 11 for 40, and they have no run game whatsoever. And they bring in Daryl Henderson, who puts a huge spark into their offense. And um, the issue was that against Kyle Shanahan, he was just running the ball straight down their throats. And he, that second half, they had the ball the entire time. You know, Goff didn't have the ball. And when he did, they were trailing, so they were throwing the football. And they tried to throw screens to Daryl Henderson. And it was completely, um, you know, because when we, we they saw Henderson and they put bodies on him. So they need to get Daryl Henderson, whether Gurley comes back or not. They need to get Henderson on the field with Todd Gurley at the same time, or else people are not going to respect them. It's If he keeps running the same stuff over and over again, it's not going to work. Somebody, um, I forget who on Twitter I was reading, was saying, you know, this reminds me of Chip Kelly in his second year, where the first year he set the world on fire, and the second year he tried to run the same stuff, and everybody studied his stuff all season. I wouldn't go to that extreme. I think McVay has more counters to him, but he hasn't shown him yet. You know, he's sitting here at 3-3, three and three and his back's against the wall, and he needs to start showing counters, and he needs to start mixing up his personnel decisions and he needs to start mixing up his tendencies within his personnel decisions because it caught everybody by storm, but now everybody knows your tendencies and they changed. You got a counter to their counter, so we'll see. But uh, that really was a situation where Kyle kind of, you know, took back the mountain a little bit and it's going to be interesting to see if he's able to run with it because, you know, he maybe has always been, like I said, you know, Kyle um, promoted Sean McVay, not the other way around, you know, when they were both in Washington together, so we'll see. And we got the uh, Titans against the Broncos, a game that I didn't necessarily watch much. I did see Mariota get benched, and like I talked about with his sacks against the Falcons, you know, he has one good game this season. It was against the Falcons. 
Um, he also beat the Browns pretty good, but um, they kind of caught them off guard. And like I said, he only he t- he took four sacks against the Browns too. So he just walks into sacks, and he just has no pocket presence. I just don't think he has confidence in himself right now. He's pressing really hard. Um, and yeah, he got benched. And I talked about it. I don't think he'll be a starter in the NFL next season. Jameis Winston probably won't either. But I. Marcus Mariota is not going to be a starter. He'll be competing with a guy like Josh Rosen somewhere. Um, you know, those two will be uh, the quarterbacks of, a t- of next year's tanking team. So that's honestly, you know, because Tannehill inspired some life into this team. There's a chance that he's going to start on Sunday. There's a serious chance that he's going to start on Sunday. So that's honestly all it was there because, you know, Mariota was honestly just so bad in this game. And the game, the play calling is just terrible. Arthur Smith, you know. We talked about him in the season preview podcast. You can hear his backstory, but he was in over his head as just a play caller. You know, he was just a position position coach who got his job because of some people that he knows. So um, he's in over his head. Vic Fangio coached some circles around him. An impressive performance at the Broncos are better than people think because they got a roughing the passer call against Mitch Trubisky, which was questionable, and a roughing the passer call against Gardner Minshew, which was questionable. If they don't get those roughing the passer calls, they're four and two right now, and they lost those two games by four points combined. So Denver's not not as bad as you think, but this game I don't think was the thing that necessarily proved that. Like I said, I think their body of work kind of speaks for themselves. They're more of a middle-of-the-road team than a bottom-tier team. And the Cowboys and the New York Jets, uh, really, you know, a surprising game for some. And, you know, as I started to think about it, probably should have thought that um, Sam Darnold, you know, we like him. I like talked about him off of mono, but I talked about also that he had three weeks to prepare in terms of he practiced the bye week. Um, he practiced the week before the Eagles game, and then he practiced all week again for the Dallas Cowboys game to play this one game. You know, they were kind of saving up Darnold for this one game, and he looked completely prepared. He punched the Cowboys in the mouth. They knew exactly what the Cowboys were going to do, and this game was a big-time indictment of Jason Garrett, but you do have to look to the Cowboys' offense and say that they were without Tyron Smith. They lost Layout Collins um, as well, and then Amari Cooper goes down during the middle of the game. They also, Randall Cobb was out, so I talked about how I thought the Cowboys' defense was a little bit overrated, and I talked about how Darnold may be able to put up some points against this Cowboys' defense if he's as healthy as you know he may as he's shown he was. But the fact is, with the Cowboys' offense, that the reason I bought the Cowboys before the season as a potential team taking the next step was their offense, because I said their offensive line is healthy. They have Witten and Cobb, who are reliable safety blankets that are very underrated, and they can move the chains. And then Amari Cooper, once they traded for him, the offense took a huge step forward because it takes Michael Gallup into Gallup was a player, you know, who was the you know, the top receiver on this team and was a rookie from Colorado State to now he's a complimentary player. So what happens when Tyron Smith and Lael Collins go down, Amari Cooper goes down, Randall Cobb's out, and Michael Gallup becomes, you know, all of a sudden it's the same offense of a 3-5 and five Cowboys team that needed to trade for Amari Cooper, right? So, you know, you have to look at the Cowboys with a little bit of a different lens when all these players are hurt, and that's where um, they get punched in the mouth by Sam Darnold, and their team just doesn't bounce back at all, and that speaks more to Jason Garrett, and I talked about in the other thing that Kellen Moore, I thought Kellen Moore would have a big influence on this offense, but I also talked about I didn't buy fully into the Cowboys because I wasn't sure how much Jason Garrett would give him full control of the offense. And then you look at those first couple games, they're scoring some points, they're running a ton of play action, they're doing um, a lot of crossing routes over the middle of the field, and then all of a sudden, Kellen Moore's name starts getting a little bit hyped up, and now 
um, Jason Garrett's, you know, hands are a little bit on the offense a little bit more. And Tony Romo said it during the game, and my ears perked up when he, when he said it during the game. He's, because Tony Romo's a really smart dude, um, and he says, you know, everyone praises him for calling out the play before it happens, but if you actually listen to everything he says, he says some very subtle things that will blow your mind because he won't go all the way into what he thinks, but he'll tip you off on some things that... Um, to, you know, you'll really know what he thinks. If you really, really listen to Tony Romo, you'll know exactly what he thinks. And he thinks Sam Darnold's going to be a superstar. Like, he really likes Sam Darnold. But he also said, at one point he said, you can tell Jason Garrett's hands are all over this offense. And <laughs> once he said that, I was like, oh my goodness, Jason Garrett took control back from Kellen Moore. Kellen Moore's name got way too hot. Jason Garrett got way too concerned about his status with the Cowboys and said, you know what, Kellen, you know, you're this young guy. Let me do this, this, and this. Let me help you with this, this, and this, because we got a big game against the Saints. And then they blow it against the Saints. And they just, oh, Kellen, you know, you got to learn this and this. You know, these are the things that you got to learn against the Saints. Now, let me, let me put a little bit more into this offense, right? And now it's, oh, uh, now they throw up another dud. And now here we go with another dud. And I know the personnel decisions, but like I said, when Romo said it, I, my ears perked up, and then uh, Des Bryant <laughs> retweeted him and said, Romo said that for a very specific reason. And a lot of people think Des Bryant's crazy, and Des Bryant is crazy, but also he he wants to win more than anybody. And he, he, he knows Tony Romo would say that for a reason. I know Tony Romo said that for a reason. Jason Garrett, man. Jason Garrett's got to do, you know, they got to do something with him because his teams have no life. He makes these terrible decisions when and when not to kick the field goal. Just, you know, his teams just completely fall apart, so... It's not a good situation for him, but like I said with the Jets, um, I actually like, you know, when Gase gets a play caller, I think he's not terrible, and they might get, you know, Herndon back at some point. Their offensive line's still going to be an issue, but like I said, you know, this is a first-year head coach, a second-year quarterback, and a GM who just got hired in August, so they're going to build this thing up and play it slow, and Darnold is two, he's uh, 26 months younger than Baker Mayfield, so Sam Darnold's ceiling is the highest of any quarterback Um. He's honestly, of the quarterbacks that I've studied since uh, probably like six, seven years ago, he's the best one that I've watched so far, and he still hasn't even touched his uh, ceiling yet. So he, there's going to be situations where we're going to be betting on Darnold because he's going to carry this team. But this team from the Jets still isn't very good. That has a lot to do with, like I said, with the Cowboys. And lastly, we have the Pittsburgh Steelers beating the Chargers 24-17. to I mean, really, everything that I talked about was that, you know, the Steelers have been, you know, have been doing just fine without quarterback play. Not necessarily just fine. They're sitting at one and four, but their defense has been very good despite poor quarterback play. And their defense, because they think that they're, you know, they're very good and they're still in this thing, that they're going to consistently show up for big spots like this. To where, like I said, they were pushing the offense in practice and they spotted the offense a couple points. And I talked about the crowd was going to be there and it was going to be eighty percent Steelers fans, and it absolutely was. And you know, Rivers with that offensive line. Couldn't hear anything. Um, the the pass rush of the Steelers just came right through. Devin Bush remains the most opportunistic player that you'll see, and you know takes it takes it for the end zone. And all of a sudden, you know, here come uh, the Steelers. They just really didn't look back from there. You know, it's twenty four seventeen, but it honestly was you know didn't even it wasn't that close of a game. Um, James Conner, I talked about him. They called him out at practice, said, you know, you need to start making more plays with the ball in your hands. Uh, seven receptions, 78 yards, and a touchdown. That's exactly, that is the definition of what the Steelers needed to get from James Conner in this position. Um, also added, you know, 41 yards on the ground. But to 
to have Hodges get the ball out of his hands quickly, to spread the ball around quickly, to use misdirection before the snap. Um, it made a, it made things a lot easier for Hodges. And, you know, I'll solve the quarterback debate right now. You know, Hodges isn't going to start. Pro- hopefully the rest of the season, if Rudolph doesn't get hurt again, you know, Hodges can't throw the ball you know, more than like 10, 15 yards because he doesn't have the arm strength. Those balls wobble. You know, they, and he threw a pick, you know, that really, you know, it's 24 nothing, and he throws a pick that all of a sudden, you know, all of a sudden the Chargers are right back in this game because he throws that interception because he was feeling himself and was completing a bunch of passes within five yards of the line of scrimmage. And then he threw one deep ball and he threw a stupid interception because those balls sail. Every time he throws a deep ball, it sails and it's going to get intercepted more than it's not. He's thrown uh, six balls more than 10 yards down the uh, line of scrimmage two were completed four were incomplete and two were interceptions um one was called back like i said earl thomas he threw an interception too where that one just it just hung uh, it just and i mean, hey listen he's smart he gets the ball out of his hands that's great but he can't throw the ball more than 10 yards down the field and somebody's gonna figure that out at some point so you know it's a, it was a great situation, and like I keep saying, the Steelers' defense remains. It has to finish top three. It should finish top three the rest of the way, and the fact that they're two and four, they're going to continue to cover a ton of numbers because it doesn't matter who their quarterback is when their defense is one of the best in the NFL. You know, Josh Allen wins with the Bills every single week, and he puts his team in holes a lot of the time, so good for the Steelers. Poor Chargers, you know, due to the fact that they have a home game and, built, you know, Rivers first play of the game. He can't even call the play because the crowd's so loud. Um, you know, they're making unforced errors. You know, it's fourth and two, and they were down 20, I think it was 21 nothing at that point, and Rivers, you know, almost gets sacked, throws the ball away, and just, you know, sprints off the field. Like, he just knows that he doesn't want to be there, you know, anymore. It's a bad situation, and I mean, you look at the Chargers, it's not getting better. Their defense is not good. Their offensive line is, um, you know, Pouncey's not coming back. Okung has a very serious illness right now, and they're they're trying to run the ball straight up the middle with Melvin Gordon behind their backup center. Um, it's it's crazy, and I talked about it. For two straight games, Melvin Gordon has thrown their offense in a huge funk um, and has just completely thrown off the rhythm of their offense um, because they're forcing the football to him in situations where they should not be forcing the football to him. So the Chargers, that game said a lot more about the Chargers than it did about the Steelers. The Steelers' defense, like I said, it was going to be the best unit in that game no matter what. The Chargers are a mess, like a, a very serious mess, and it's going to be interesting to see. Um, where they're going to go because this is not the roster that they had last year. And Anthony Lynn is not the coach that's going to, you know, pull them out. He's going to be the coach that's going to say, we just got to run the ball more. We just got to run the ball more. So that's going to be a tough spot for them. And lastly, we do have the Thursday night football preview. This one's going to be interesting because um, we're looking into the Denver Broncos catching three and a half, hopefully maybe four by game time. But we're thinking about potentially taking the Broncos against the Kansas City Chiefs. It's always the hardest thing in the world to bet against Patrick Mahomes. But um, we've talked about it. You know, just listen to the Chiefs podcast or listen to what we just said earlier today where Mahomes has an ankle injury. His accuracy in the past two games has been um, just completely he's much less accurate over these past two games than he's ever been in his entire career. His offensive line is not getting healthier. You know, they let their center go. They're really struggling at center. They are left tackle Fisher. It doesn't look like he's going to be back for this game. Um, and their left guard is not going to be back for this game. So they're still banged up in terms of that. Uh, I don't think Watkins going to play Tyreek Hill. Like I said, played half the game. He should probably get eased back into the game, but he's going to get Chris Harris and they're going to bracket coverage over him. And they're going to kind of, you know, shift everything back over towards uh, towards all the other skilled players. And like I said, you know, who, Demarcus Robinson, Byron Pringle, it's going to be tough for them to consistently create that separation. So I'm thinking that, you know, the Chiefs, 
did not they're not going to, you know, bounce right back here and they're back for blood here. I think the Chiefs are a little bit of a wounded duck right now, you know, struggling against Detroit, struggling against Indianapolis, struggling against Houston, and now a road division game on a short week against, like I said, this Denver team is not far away from being a 4-2 and two club to where Vic Fangio, you know, starting to try and bring this team together. Um, they've The last two weeks, they started to really start to get sacks. Um, they actually had a decent game plan against Mahomes to where when Mahomes went to mile high last season, it was on Monday Night Football, and he only won by four points in that game. So, you know, like I said, you know, you're looking at that three and a half point four-point spread and saying, you know, Denver has the chance here to cover this spread. Um, the Chiefs are the worst run defense. The Broncos, with their two running backs, are starting to get Lindsey into a, um, a mode and really starting to run the ball well with him. So all of a sudden, you know, you're thinking, I think Cortland Sutton also is a, a number one receiver by this point, and Flacco has the trust in him. So I think uh, Sutton's a decent fantasy play. I think Lindsey's the better fantasy play than Freeman, but both of them are a little bit sneaky. And um, I think they're going to run the ball. They're going to get, you know, just enough offense. And then Fangio's going to do his thing against Patrick Mahomes and keep Mahomes in the pocket to where I think this is going to be a close game. I think it's a field goal game on either side. So I'll take the hook in the three and a half and um, probably looking towards the under, but I'm still definitely because that Chiefs defense, um, it's hard to take the under with them, especially, you know, it, it still is Mahomes. And if he gets into survivor mode, um, he still puts up, you know, points every single week. But they're a wounded duck right now, and they're on the road in Mile High Stadium in a tough environment against a team that has pushed Mahomes. Every time Mahomes is on the field, they've pushed him. So it'll be interesting to see. And I'm, I'm thinking uh, the, the Broncos, but uh, hit us up on Twitter at TNF underscore podcast and at Parker Hurley if you have any questions. And if you want to see if we got down on this game, we'll talk to you later.